Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together Bruce and I have written almost three dozen cookbooks, including the Instant Pot Bible, everything you need to know for every size of Instant Pot that is on the market, and the upcoming Instant Air Fryer Bible, all about how to use the air fryers made by Instant Brands, the Omni and the Vortex that's out this fall. Check it out. Air fryers are definitely a trend, and that feeds into our first segment. Today, we're going to talk about food trends. And when it comes to food trends, nothing is more telling than what you find at the New York City Fancy Food Show. I know the San Francisco Parasites, Fancy Food Parasites? Well, mm. Amoebas? Well, actually, that happened. Uh, food poisoning? That happened to me once. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in another episode. It did. Because people walk around these convention centers shoving their hands in bowls of food mm-hmm. and eating things mm-hmm. off of trays. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was young. I was, you know, this was like 25 years ago. You were young and ready for an amoeba. (laughs) And I got one Mm. at the New York City Fancy Mm -hmm. Food Show. Can they sue us for uh, for, Uh, for that? No, they cannot. (laughs) They're lucky I didn't sue them, actually. Actually, it's not the Fancy Food Show's fault. It is the individual vendors. And you would never be able to place any culpability on any individual vendor unless you ate exactly one thing all day, which is not the truth. Well, some of our favorite brands, you know, were first noticed and went viral oh, at the so fancy. We're, we're, we're <laughs> off the vi- the amoeba conversation then. Okay, go on. Like Stonewall Kitchen. Not that their food is viral, but they are a huge company, right? Um, they're, they're, I think they're worldwide at this point. Certainly they're nationwide here. They started at the Fancy Future where they got their notice. Dafour, the real frozen puff pastry. Um, started, got their hit at the Fancy Food Show. So did Nyman Ranch Bacon. So a lot of brands we know and love started and were discovered at the Fancy Food Show. They do. And if you look at what's at the Fancy Food Show in any given year, you could discover exactly what some of the food trends are. And one of the trends that was definitely noticeable this year is the comeback of pasta. And we should just say that if you don't know this, pasta sales are up across the board in North America and across Europe too. We're speaking here mostly of of dried pastas, and that is attributed allegedly. I don't know the exact facts on this, but it is at least attributed to the pandemic. Well, people wanted comfort food. People kind of didn't care if they put weight back on, and they just wanted to feel good, and nothing makes you feel better than mac and cheese oh, or that, spaghetti and meatballs. Yeah, I think that's it. And I also think that pasta is an easy thing to make. I mean, if you're going to make homemade food, you can boil dried pasta. A lot of people, of course, overboil it or do that horrible thing of putting oil in the water. Don't ever or the do the other that. horrible thing of not putting salt in the water. Oh, you, you have to boil your pasta in almost the equivalent of the ocean. <laughs> I mean, it has to. Not quite. <laughs> okay, not quite. water. You do need to salt the water, though. But um, pasta has become quite the thing. And there are many, many pastas on the market. But apparently at the Fasting Food Show, there are even more kinds. Uh, we have discovered from the fancy food show that flavors and ingredients are being added you might not expect like cocoa infused pasta just not going there uh well no uh, no but you can have a nice dessert chocolate how about a chocolate fettuccine alfredo no i don't want it it's gross (laughs) i just don't want it there's something about the texture of pasta and the thought of sweet food that i don't want but it is true that flavored pastas across the board from rosemary pasta to of course the old glory of spinach pasta Mm -hmm. all of those herb flavored pastas they're all coming on and not only those but coming on big are the alternative 
to wheat pastas, the lentil pastas, the chickpea pastas. Mm-hmm. These are all coming on big time. And we love them. Mark and I love the non-wheat pastas. We love chickpea pasta. We do. You know how much fiber is in chickpea pasta? It is actually incredible. I, and I love the yellow lentil pasta a great deal. These are We are not gluten-free, but these are all gluten-free products. But we are not gluten-free. But still, nonetheless, I actually prefer yellow lentil pasta and chickpea pasta at this point to traditional pasta, except with some exceptions like carbonara and <laughs> things that where the pasta is really the center of the dish. And right? the texture of a semolina wheat pasta is it is so and the texture of semolina pasta cannot be duplicated so as much as we like the chickpea pasta and we really like the lentil pasta it is not semolina pasta and you know the difference so there are times when you need that wheat and nothing else will do for you it's true another big story coming out of the fancy food show is the increase of plant-based foods and we all know about impossible burgers at this point we all know about the meat substitutes but did you know that there are many many more plant-based foods and the big category right now uh, is plant-based cheese it's a huge huge growing market it's a huge market. Mark and I were in Asheville earlier this year. We've talked about this in a previous podcast. And one of the restaurants we went to was a vegan restaurant called Plant. A fantastic restaurant. And we actually ordered their cheese plate. And it was all vegan cheeses. One was aged with truffles. One was like a fresh ricotta. Um, There was a third cheese on that plate. And cheeses made from plants are huge. They're delicious. In fact, later on in this episode, we're going to be talking to some some plant-based protein experts. And it's just, I love plant-based cheese. What can I say? And I think another big category, and this one is a little irritating to me, I have to say. Uh, another big category are shrubs. And the reason this is, uh, we'll explain what a shrub is in a minute. The reason this is irritating to me as a possible trend is because it's been a possible trend for almost 15 years now. And I don't quite understand how it's still a possible trend. It seems like one of these things that everybody wants to be a trend, but isn't a trend. But anyway, what's a shrub? A shrub is a drink that mixes vin- Vinegar syrup blended with sparkling water, and it's often fruit and vinegar and spices right. and vinegar. Right. And they reached the peak of popularity, oh, in about the early 1800s. Right. And they are very <laughs> Jane austen They are very Charlotte Bronte-ish. Uh, they were considered medicinal at the time um, and some kind of way that you could calm your stomach. They still are kind of sold that way by many manufacturers even today. It's nice to think that Victorian world is still around us in some <laughs> weird way. Hey, at least we're not being bled anymore. Well, tr- well, true and nonetheless. We even have a friend, Jack Hollihan, who started a shrub company and started out with a bang, got Sachi behind him and started this kind of pseudo wine-like shrubs. They are amazing elixirs in their own right. But it seems like, doesn't it, that this is, is tried to be a trend for years. It seems like the kind of thing that hipsters and foodies want to be a trend. It's part of the problem and I think it'll never really explode like the way, let's say, hard seltzers have is because you have to do something with them. You're creating an ingredient. 
Right. So you have to mix them into sparkling water, and whether that's Pellegrino or Badois or just plain old seltzer, you have to do something. You don't just drink these. And I think if you want something to just be a huge hit for the U.S. culture, it's got to be pop it open and drink it. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, if I went to any number of high-end bars in, let's say, downtown St. Louis or downtown um, Louisville or downtown New Orleans, if I went to any number of high-end bars there, I would find shrubs aplenty. And the bartenders would be using lots of shrubs. But I've always said it's not a trend until it's at Chili's and Friday's. <laughs> and if it's there, then it then i'll buy it that it's a trend otherwise it just seems a kind of aficionado desire Mm. for this to be a trend i'll take you one step further i don't think it's a trend until it's at safeway well and stop and shop all right i'll I'll buy that actually and that we should also say that another big trend for the year are vegetable chips and this has been again one of these things that has been around for years but it seems as if the supply on the market and the growing amount of vegetable chips are increasing because of the increased prominence of, believe it or not, Asian markets. Well, yeah, it is. So you're getting things like mushroom chips, and you're getting things that are just really unusual vegetables to begin with and flavors. If you've listened to our podcast in the past, you know that we ordered hot pot flavored potato chips from China recently. Right. And so we're looking forward to lots of interesting new flavored chips and it's also technology vacuum drying flash fried dried tomatoes were showing up at the show this year and so mushrooms and tomato chips were a huge thing at the show i remember years ago buying those green bean chips at whole foods remember they were like dehydrated dehydrated hard crunchy green beans when they called like just green beans or something something like that and i remember loving those i haven't had them in years i remember loving them because they were super crunchy which is always my thing it's got to be crunchy they were super crunchy and they were a little salty but they did taste like green beans but i don't i think that they weren't just this giant seller. I don't even do they even sell them at Whole Foods? I don't even know. I anymore. haven't seen them in ages. Those those dehydrated. It's all the dehydrated fruit. They didn't yeah. call them chips. It was like there was a container of corn kernels that were just dehydrated. It was like right. astronaut food, basically. <laughs> right. Well, a lot of that is becoming chip formed. I expect those dehydrated <laughs> green beans to be turned into chips of some kind. How can we soon. process your food more for you? Yes, ex- <laughs> exactly, and make somehow better vegetable chips. And finally, of course, the move is constantly and has been for at least a decade towards sustainability. I like this. um, It's important. The sustainability bits are important. What we saw at the show this year were seaweed seasonings made with regenerative Maine seaweed. We saw them made with desert salts that were sustainably harvested from the salt from the Kalahari Desert in South Africa. Let me tell you, that is not going away anytime soon. No, the sustainability bit is not. And people are increasingly interested in sustainable food. And the reason I know this is I'm going to go back to my chilies and TGIF, TGIF Friday examples and those kind of things. Is because when I go visit my mom in an expert of St. Louis in St. Peter's, Missouri, and I go around to some of the local stores and I pick us up lunch. Let's say I go to, you know, some small little mom and pop uh, Mexican restaurant and I pick us up tacos. Yes, I've even got my mother to eat tongue tacos. So I pick us up. You probably did not tell her what they were. I did, in fact, and she tried it. Uh, I pick us up tacos. I noticed that on the menu at even this little bitty mom and pop uh, Mexican restaurant not too far from her, there are all kinds of 
caveats about sustainability and where they get their meat. And listen, this is a tiny little place just run by a family. If it's there in an exurb outside of St. Louis, then I know that sustainability is an actual concern that is ongoing and is part of the growing food market across North America. Okay, before we get to our next segment, let me just say that it would be great if you subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. We are so glad you're on this journey with us. Thank you for being with us. I wish we could sit around and talk about food trends around a table with glasses of iced tea or wine or bourbon or whatever is your choice. Shrub. We do with the shrub. Uh, shrubs, hard seltzer, whatever your choice is. I wish we could sit around and talk about food trends together because I bet you've seen some food trends that you notice are popping up around you. If you want to find out more, you can always check out our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Okay, up next. Our one-minute cooking tip. Peeling tomatoes and peaches is easier than you think. It's all about getting the right tool. I know we were all taught, if you were taught classically how to cook, that you score the skin of them, you drop them in boiling water, that's, then you put them in ice water. Buy yourself a serrated vegetable peeler. That's all you need. A serrated <laughs> vegetable peeler will slice right through the delicate, thin peel of a tomato, even a plum of a peach. It's a perfect. So get the right tool and make your life And easier. let me say this about serrated tools, which is going to cause this segment to go a little longer than one minute. Let me say this about serrated tools. They're almost impossible to sharpen. So after a couple years of a serrated vegetable peeler or even a couple years of a serrated bread knife, you just need to replace it. They are very difficult, even for professional sharpeners to sharpen. So just realize that your bread knife, if it's over five years old, you probably need a new one. And the same goes for the vegetable peeler. Okay, up next, segment three, Bruce's interview with Aubrey and Kale Walsh. They are the authors of Get This, The Herbiferous Butcher, a brand new book out about their vegetable-centered butchery. This morning, I'm talking to Kale and Aubrey Welch, they are the owners of the Herbiferous Butcher, the first vegan butcher shop in the world. Now they have a new book coming out called The Herbiferous Butcher. Welcome, guys. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having us. Good morning. My pleasure. So first, I want to talk about the shop a bit. What you sell in the shop is all plant-based meat. And now in your book, you're offering folks at home a chance to make some of these same amazing meat substitutions. And I was blown away with things like the rib, the butcher burger, even a plant-based porterhouse steak. You can make these at home. And let me ask you a question. Since there's a wide variety of plant-based meats already in the supermarket, there's the Impossible Burger and Beyond Meat, why do you recommend people make it themselves from scratch? For me, part of the, part of the impetus in writing this cookbook was uh, to help create this, uh, help recreate, I should say, this very specific feeling that I had when I was first making vegan meats. And for me, it was unlike any uh, like culinary venture I'd ever attempted before, where, you know, it felt, you know, omnidirectional in a way that I never thought possible. You know, it takes, borrows things from baking, it borrows things from, you know, any cuisine you want. And it marries it all into this this beautiful, uh, I guess, vehicle. And I guess for me, the reason why you know you would make 
a steak instead of like buying a pack of Beyond Meat is to, you know, recreate that feeling and the customization of it. You know, you can make it taste however you want at home, uh, like on a molecular level even. You know, with the Beyond Meat, you're, you're working with the, the substrate. It's fantastic. It's a great product. But, you know, there's, there's, you're limited by, you know, how you flavor and marinate it. Uh, but when you're making a steak at home, you can make a, you can make a blueberry steak if you're feeling zany. You can make it, you can make it purple if you want. You can, any old color. Um, <laughs> so th- there's just the level of customization and, you know, for dietary restrictions, uh, you can change anything you want. So there's, there's a bunch of reasons why, but th- th- that's just a few for me. I see throughout your recipes, whether you're making vegan ground beef or steaks, you use a lot of ingredients like yeast flakes and fermented soy and miso. What do these add to the mix? Two things. Uh, the nutritional yeast flakes, they help give the meat uh, the B6 and B12 vitamin profile that they would be normally missing that you know real meat has. That some vegans and vegetarians can be deficient in if they're, you know, if they're not paying attention, I guess. But apart from that, they both sort of give the, the meat the savory notes. But more than that, the miso helps impart a bit of the, it's, it's called the kokumi sensation. It's sort of described as like an unctuousness. It gives the meat that fatty feeling on your tongue a little bit. It's kind of hard to describe, but uh, between those two, you kind of get a good balance of the, just the regular, you know, umami, savory, and, and this sort of unctuousness. It's pretty fun. Will different kinds of miso give you a different complexion in the finished product? It, it will, yeah. We, we typically use a white miso because it's a little bit less intense than, say, the red. In my experience, it's, uh, you taste more of the miso, you know, you're getting less, a little bit less salt. And you not only offer up recipes for plant-based beef in your book, you've got pork chops and chicken covered as well. And that is a wonderful surprise, I think, to a lot of readers. And I'm going to ask you, what are some of the secrets to getting a differentiation in taste and texture compared to the plant-based beef? You know, we use different blends of like beet powder, things like that, that, that give the porterhouse steak kind of that, that red meat look. We use different uh, vinegars and juices to you know, help change the texture of the meat a little bit. Uh, for example, like a bit of the red wine vinegar that's used in the porterhouse steak makes it a little bit more tender. And for other meats, we might not want that necessarily, or we might use a different vinegar to get a different profile. But with the same base and a little tweaking, you know, you can get, like you said, anything from the pork chop to a chicken to all the crazy stuff we make at the shop today. What are some of the crazy things you're making at the shop since you brought that up? <laughs> These days, you know, we, we work with jackfruit a lot for some of the gluten-free applications. And we, we sell a bunch of uh, shredded beef, shredded chicken, uh, things of that nature. And, you know, the, the butchers are working on dried sort of meat jerky sticks, things like that. And really anytime we have a, you know, a custom order, we're, we're happy to fill it. We, we love a good challenge. Uh, what I love about the book is it doesn't stop at chops and steaks. You've got plant-based charcuterie as well. And you've even got plant-based foie gras. So how do you make that as rich and creamy as the real thing? Uh, well, the, the foie gras is, <laughs> how we first originally made it was um, with, 
blended up mushrooms, different types of mushrooms. We used miso in there. We used um, our house-made vegan butter and we just made this kind of incredible creamy pate that just melted in your mouth. And we made it for a really fancy event and people just, they just loved it so much. Um, I, neither of us had ever had foie gras before. And so it was really about taking the descriptions that we saw online and, and how people described it that really, you know, allowed us to be able to get it right. Well, that's wonderful that two non-meat eaters can create such realistic meat substitutes. Do you find that most of the customers that come to the shop are meat eaters experimenting or are most of them vegetarians or vegans just looking for a good meat substitute? Well, you know, we are in the thick of the Midwest meat and potatoes land. So um, since the beginning and, and even starting at the farmer's market, we really found that about 65% of our customer base, were they, they were um, omnivores, people that were doing meat-free Monday or just trying to cut down. It's summertime, you know, and they want to eat lighter. But um, over the years, we've watched those people slowly gear more and more towards plant-based, you know, and we would first, we would just see the mother of the family come in and, and then we'd see the kids and then they bring grandma in and all of a sudden the entire family's kind of eating together and i i think it's kind of goes to the basis of why we started this business which is you know we wanted our family to be able to eat together all the time and not feel like oh someone's just getting pasta or you know you can just have a salad and some french fries we wanted everyone to be able to experience that beautiful family food event that you have every, you know, every single holiday or Sundays. Our family on Guam had big barbecues on Sundays and just as such a special part of growing up. I think that part of the success of your new book is going to be not just that you give people the base for making their own plant-based ground beef or steaks or chops. You take it to the next step. You give recipes in this cookbook to use those plant-based meats for pot roast, you have fried chicken. Your culinary creativity goes way over the top with plant-based bacon, cream corn, and Reuben croquettes. Do you come up with these recipe ideas together? You know, it's it's funny because we both say that we weren't, you know, we didn't stop eating meat because we didn't like it. I, I consider myself a meat eater, but a vegan meat eater. And we both just love food so much. And we would, we lived in the same apartment building for a while in a fourplex. He lived upstairs and across the hall. And so every time we made a, a dish for dinner or whatever, we would, you know, share it with each other. And so we really did do it together. And we would talk about, okay, well, this, you know, this needs a little more creaminess to, to really make it convincing. And so it was, you know, it was about eating together and talking about it. And I think our love of food is really what drove us to do literally everything we do today. You just talked about creaminess, which makes me have to ask you a question about a recipe in your new book, fondue. Now, the photo is gorgeous and it looks like a rich, creamy cheese fondue. How do you recreate that perfect, melty texture without cheese? I got a fondue pot and I thought, well, you know, I, I don't just want to use chocolate in this. You know, it's, it's, it's easier to get vegan chocolate. So I asked Kale, can you do a fondue cheese for me? You know, can you get that cherry liqueur flavor? Can you get 
you know, the garlic that you rub within the pot and, and how do you do it? So Kale, do you want to talk about how you made this incredible thing for me? Oh, sure. Yeah. So it's a, uh, I, you know, a, a lot of times for, for foods that I haven't really had, sometimes it's like, you know, finding a needle in a haystack where, you know, I don't know where the haystack is. And <laughs> I, I, I love a challenge like that. And I, I, even before I was vegan, I, I didn't eat much dairy. So fondue was, it was an interesting challenge. And I, I think I, 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 I took a lot of tries at it before we finally got one that worked, but it was a sort of a combination of two things along with our, our regular cheese base. It was a bit of a tahini that kind of gave it an additional fattiness and a bit of uh, sort of nutty creaminess on the back end combined with uh, a very nice sherry, uh, cooking sherry. I don't know, the, the marriage of those two flavors, which you wouldn't really see in a lot of different cooking contexts, really lending for a really nice vegan fondue. So Yeah, I mean, you made that Emmentaler flavor just like pop like crazy. It was amazing. I think that recipe in the book is going to be worth the price of admission alone. It sounds absolutely amazing. Another recipe in the book, the picture just blew me away. I had to do a double take on it because salt roasted lox made without salmon. Now, we have to have a good bagel topping. You did it. Tell me about this. There's some things that, that we do in the kitchen that the, the result doesn't seem to match the process, you know? Like, like why, why, why does this work? It doesn't, it doesn't make much sense. The best I can describe it is magic. Yeah, I mean, neither Kale nor I have ever had fish in our lives. So um, it's, we've tried and tried to recreate it. And, and Kale has like come to me with this just massive of strange whatever that was covered in seaweed and sitting in a broth. And he's like, here's fish. And so when we asked him to figure out how to create a lox, like, oh gosh, here we go. But it was, you know, something about how you slice the carrots and, and, and how you just, the salt, something about the salt and the, just everything that goes into those carrots and they, they sit in it and then they, they just get this, it is magic. I don't really understand why it gets incredible texture and flavor and. Yeah. And that's, that's part of the fun of, you know, this cookbook and, you know, making vegan meats for me is that, you know, to make a successful lox, I had to, I had to sort of take a step back and, and tell myself, you know, Kale, everything doesn't have to be made of wheat. You know, you don't have to do it all with wheat. You can do some things with, I don't know, there's a bunch of veggies out there. And uh, I think I saw, it was out in, I think, California, there was a restaurant that was doing some sashimi uh, using carrots. And I thought, well, you know, you could, I think I could improve on the on the flavor and kind of make the make the thin sliced carrot a little bit more fleshy, for lack of a better term. So, yeah, that's just that is to say that there is there is no limit to what you can do with with vegan meat. Clearly, there's no limit, and you both are culinary geniuses for what you have come up with in your shop and in the new book. Today I spoke with Aubrey and Kale Welch, again, the owners of the Herbiferous Butcher, which is the first vegan butcher shop in the world. 
and I'm very excited about their new book coming out called The Orbiferous Butcher. Guys, thanks so much for spending a few minutes talking about your work with us. Thank you. Okay, I, co I couldn't in a thousand years when I was a kid have imagined that there would be vegetable butchers around. Could you? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I could barely get my brain around meat butchers when I was a kid, much less vegetable butchers. They're wow. amazing. The work they're doing is fabulous. Okay, our final segment. As is traditional, what's making us happy in food this week? And you can go first. All right. Santa Rosa plums. And <laughs> we had the annual delivery of the plums. And what, mm. what I mean by that mm. is my sister and brother-in-law live in Silicon Valley. And they have a beautiful garden in their backyard, including two Santa Rosa plum trees. And lots of lime and trees and lemon trees. They do. And that. But these two plum trees are so prolific. And they put out... Shopping bag after shopping bag after shopping bag after shopping bag of plums. And every year, my brother-in-law, Mike, puts know, 20 pounds in a USPS flat rate priority box and sends them to me. So we had the arrival of the Santa Rosa plums, <laughs> and we've been eating them, and I made my annual Santa Rosa plum jam. And what's making me happy in food this week are bread and butter pickles, and Bruce has made the summer batch of bread and butter pickles. If you don't know about this, you should check out our YouTube channel, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. There is a video there of Bruce making exactly these bread and butter pickles. He even watched the video yesterday just to make sure he was doing <laughs> it in exactly the same way as he made them. I love bread and butter pickles in the summer more than I can say. And these are not canned. They're refrigerator pickles. So all you need is a big container and some space in your fridge. And you can have delicious bread and butter pickles for weeks ahead using this, which I think is the finest recipe around. After all, it did get some, right, some great placement in Fine Cooking Magazine back in the day. I mean, it, it's quite the recipe, and it's quite delicious. All herby and sweet and delicious pickles. Okay, that's our show for this week. We're glad you're along with us. We hope that you learned a little about food trends, and we hope you learned a lot about being a vegetable butcher. So as Mark said, subscribe so you don't miss a single episode and join our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And we will look forward to having you with us again on another episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.